Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, a podcast exploring Roots Music's great artists. Please do rate and subscribe. It makes a huge difference and let all your friends know to listen. This is Enda Scal from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us and mostly just one banjo. That's me. Well, I'm in Galway again, and it's raining again, and I can no longer see Galway Bay or the Hills of Clare, but nonetheless, we press on. This interview is one that I did for the American Banjo Museum for their uh, series called The Superfluous Fifth String, and it was one of the more interesting ones for me because I got to interview Martin Howley uh, of We Banjo 3. So interviewing somebody that I'd known for a very long time was uh, challenging and fun, And what came out of it is an incredibly in-depth analysis of banjo playing and also a good look into the mind of Martin Howley, who has an engineering background. And that certainly comes out in this interview as his analysis of banjo technique, uh, right down to the very finest detail, is uh, really something to listen to. So I hope that you enjoy this interview. And again, a huge thank you to the American Banjo Museum for allowing me to use the audio from the original uh, uh, broadcast for this podcast. Welcome to the superfluous fifth string. My guest today is my bandmate from Wee Banjo 3, an incredible banjo player, a virtuoso in his own right, seven times national champion on banjo and mandolin, the first Irish banjo player to play the Grand Old Opry, and a curious musician who investigated all of the intricate roles from bluegrass five-string banjo and incorporated them onto four-string banjo. Please enjoy my chat with Martin Howley. Martin Howley, you're very welcome to the Superfluous Fifth String video series for the American Banjo Museum. Uh, How are you? I'm fantastic. I've been trying to find that fifth string all my life and uh, <laughs> come up short. I'm happy there. <laughs> so this is a kind of a funny interview for me because obviously we are bandmates and friends for many, many years. And uh, so you're a renowned banjo player. And I think if somebody that maybe didn't know you the way that I know you was conducting this interview, they might say, Martin Howley multiple All-Ireland champion winning banjo player, best known as the mandolinist in Wee Banjo 3. That is true, yeah. Or maybe I'm known as the guy who tried to hand a banjo to Barack Obama. I'm not sure which is my uh, more illustrious moment in time. (laughs) He wouldn't take it, though. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. Do you identify mostly as a banjo player or a mandolin player or some form of non-binary four-string folk instrumentalist? (laughs) That's a great question. What do I identify as? I identify as a person who struggles with the mechanics of stringed instruments and the inefficiencies therein. And uh, I, I, I enjoy the frustration of all the different stringed instruments equally from mandolin through to the banjo and onwards. So is Irish banjo your first love? Oh yeah, most certainly that was the instrument that ignited the passion. I I started on tin whistle like many kids in Ireland growing up and uh, more or less by accident and serendipitously because like our dad, Dave and I, our dad is a great musician, great guitarist. There was lots of music in the house, but we never had a, a drive when we were young to go out playing music and it was just by happenstance that one of our friends was going to lessons that we picked it up and then later in the national school there was ten whistle and we enjoyed that as well and uh, originally I started playing flute and I really enjoyed the concert flute I've been back playing it this year with lockdown um, it's a really interesting instrument because it teaches you so much about breath um, and that's sort of analogous to life and certainly in other instruments like the banjo and the mandolin we've talked extensively about breath within the stringed instruments um but it was just by chance that dave was going to get a banjo from tom cousin our dear friend tom uh and dave was more interested in the little dogs that tom had at the time so i played the banjo uh to try it out and i loved it i just loved the the raw happy sound that emerged from the instrument and i got stuck into it and 
at the time, Banjo was going through this transformative process with players like yourself and Jerry O'Connor and Kieran Hanran. You know, it's been brought to new frontiers and pushed much on a much different exponential timescale than some of the other instruments in Irish traditional music because they had undergone, like, you know, you look at the likes of Michael Coleman and the fiddle. He had done so much to create technical prowess in the fiddle nearly 100 years before my time, whereas the banjo was still relatively new and nascent and it was on its own trajectory. And so that was very exciting. I think when I got into it and realized all the changes that were happening um, and the new frontier has been broken, I loved that. Uh, so it definitely was my first love. And then it translates well to other instruments like the mandolin, obviously, and the guitar. Uh, but I think banjo would have been the central part of my musical existence for many years and still is to this day. You know, I, I don't go much time without picking up a banjo here or there. So... Uh, you mentioned Tom Cusson of Clarine Banjos. You know, Tom specializes in Irish tenor banjo. And do you have a preference for a vintage make versus a new banjo? And I guess uh, if you had an unlimited amount of money, what would you, <laughs> what would you buy? Uh, I would love, you know, my background is in engineering interestingly enough, and I would love to work with someone on trying to introduce more mechanical efficiency to a banjo. I feel like as I've gone on playing, I've realized that there, especially when I move over to the mandolin, which is a higher string tension, um, and you're playing with a heavier pick, there's less latency in the instrument, less like the string flexing and moving away from you, which at speed tends to create all sorts of problems. Um, so I'd love to explore, if I had an unlimited pool of money, I'd love to explore a, a new, um, a physic, physical banjo that does more in the vein of what I want. I love Tom's banjos. The clarines are great, and I've really enjoyed playing them. That's what I play all the time. And in terms of vintage banjos, I grew up with the Wayman banjo, and I've always loved Wayman have those narrow pots, and, and I really like Wayman banjos and their sound. But I, I'm not probably the best or most versed in how, what vintage banjo or what new banjo people should play because I just pick up banjos and some of them speak to me and some of them don't. And I don't have the technical knowledge of how they should be. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about pots and rims and things that other people and might flanders. Is that an inherent issue with tenor banjo? Uh, in my imaginary world, I think, right, if I uh, wanted a mandolin, I want a lower mandolin or I want a Gibson mandolin or I want a Collings mandolin. And I know if I spend 15000 on a Dudenbostel or whatever, that I'm going to get an awesome instrument. I don't have the same feeling with banjo that it tends to be a bit of a lottery if I go and spend five or 6000 I'm not 100% sure that it's going to be amazing. Yeah, that's, and I wonder, I don't know, I've had some of these conversations with some great five-string players too. I think you hit the nail on the head that spending the money doesn't necessarily mean you get a good banjo. Um, I think partly because, you know, you go to the American Banjo Museum and you see the banjos, and after a certain point, it's not about progression of tone, it's about progression of the ornate physicality of the banjo, the aesthetic. You know, you have these bejeweled, bediamond, huge, beautiful wood finishes and I mean, gorgeous banjos, like all the Singerland banjos of decades past and old Gibson master tones, a lot of the like more ornate paragons and paramounts. You see them in, in, in real life in the Bacon and Day and the Bell, Silver Bell banjos. They're all unbelievably ornate. But I don't know that that ornateness has any real positive effect on tone. And I think after a certain point, the banjo, especially in the four strings, it's such a niche thing. I think that the pursuit of tone and the pursuit of playability fell secondary to the aesthetic of the banjo. And I think that's where we're at. We're kind of trapped in a, a loop of tradition, wanting not to break the mold too much to appreciate what we've had, but also not having the uh, critical mass to drive on a pursuit for a next generation banjo. I feel like Maybe that will come in time because you look at like all the players now that are coming up that are really technically brilliant and are looking for more from the banjo and they'll push that. And so 
that's my hope is that we see more progression in the actual mechanical impetus of the instrument. Mm, but that's going to take a maker to really concentrate on making a much, much better technical tenor banjo. And a lot, I would feel a lot, you know, outside of the Irish circuit where Tom Custon specializes in Irish tenor banjo, but is largely, you know, took an Epiphone from the 1920s and went, this is a very good banjo and I'm going to make it with modern parts. Uh, I, I do feel a lot of the other makers like Prussia, like I've seen the five string Prussia banjos that I think they're made in the Czech Republic. Alison Brown has one. They're an awesome banjo, but you go online and listen to their tenors and they sound, they don't match up with what, what the five string uh, equivalent is. And it seems like the tenor is, oh, we'll just knock off a fifth string, make it a bit shorter, put on heavier strings and hope for the best. Uh, it's going to take that special maker that's going to go right, I'm, I'm going to dedicate myself to Elon Musk of the banjo, essentially. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah, we should get Elon involved in making the banjo great again. The, I feel like part of the problem is that the five-string banjo and the tenor banjo have been on paths divergent, you know. Uh, they're seeking very different things from their tone than we are. Um, and especially because if you think about the Irish banjo as primarily a melody-driven instrument, um, and a lot of it is very rhythmical, it's pursuing a very different avenue. So the path of progression is different to the five-string and it doesn't work to just apply a blanket of five-string techniques and progressions to a four-string banjo. Um, although, that being said, there are people like Tom Neckville who are making very interesting, you know, almost taking from other avenues of uh, innovation, like he's um, cyclotronic, is that what they call that? Mm -hmm. The head that moves. Like, on ball bearings, like that's a really interesting idea or, you know, using different carbon fiber parts or um, Teflon or these space age materials that may give us new qualities in terms of tonal experience and the weight issue because banjos traditionally have been so heavy um, and I'm not able for the heaviness of a banjo. I'm going to say that <laughs> right now. Nor am I. And I've no idea how Alison Brown must have a core like a, an Olympic weightlifter because the weight yeah. of our Prussia banjo probably equivalent to her own weight. It sounds amazing, but the weight is unbelievable. Yeah, I think she she like exists in her own space of gravity where the banjo <laughs> operates in a different <laughs> weight class. Very good. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I do I do really admire Tom Neckville um because he's really trying to push the envelope, the envelope in terms of the the make of the banjo and right. try, trying to find something different from it. Because um, uh, I did think for a while that maybe an electric banjo, that would be the way to go to get the playability that I envy so much on guitar, for instance. Because yeah. guitar is the same scale length, maybe even a little bit longer than banjo. And the playability that they have, the low action, that ease of play. And I'm like, oh my God, if, if a banjo played like that, 180 yeah. BPM would be easy. Whereas now it's like incredibly difficult yeah I'm, I'm struggling with 18 bpm right now on the banjo <laughs> to get it right it's it's you're you're so right that you do look enviously and i think i remember watching a couple of years ago uh chris Thiele talking about the mandolin in the same light that i think that you know that has its own inefficiencies when you compare it to um, the piano or the violin especially in terms of the tonal characteristics that you can bring out from striking a string uh with a, with a closed resonance length, it's not the same in terms of what you can do with a bow or what you can do with multiple keys and hammers. Uh, and you do see that, like the, the palette, the sonic palette you have is more limited in certain respects, but also it's more interesting because of those defects. The, the imperfectness makes it more alluring to me anyway. Um, but that being said, if I could go back, I would spend more time with other instruments because I think the transference quality, like, the flute has been really informative this year for me. I'm still a terrible flute player, but I'm really enjoying playing because it's making me think about Irish tunes in a very different way. The phrasing is very dictated by the breath. And then when I go and pick up a banjo, I'm thinking about that phrasing much more uh, intuitively on the breath side of things. Um, and so that's been really good for me is to like push out the boundaries a little bit by thinking about other ways to think about Phrasing, yeah. Mm. Do you feel um, 
do you feel do you feel curtailed within the Irish idiom in terms of uh, musical expression um, and also maybe technical challenge? I, I, I get the feeling that you know you could play reels and jigs from now until the end of time without any you know great difficulty. And in that sense, like even the makeup of an Irish banjo is perfectly sufficient for 90% of Irish reels and jigs and stuff. But I guess with the band and with We Banjo 3 trying to constantly push boundaries musically. Uh, yeah. What do you think about that? I think, I think, I think that I, I feel curtailed and also I feel like there's a, an absolute mountain of work I could do within the Irish idiom. I, I in no way think that I have figured it out. Like I listen to Martin Hayes or Frankie or some record that, you know, has been part of my life for multiple years. And I hear new details in it that I'm sort of eager to try and figure out and, and do better. But at the same time, I do find that I have an increasing proclivity to explore outside of the Irish tradition um, Irish plus maybe like the idea that you know there's things that I could bring back to the tradition and to the canon that would be exciting and new um, and so I've been trying to do that but I do think you're right there's there's sort of a a use case for the banjo in Irish music where it's part of the rhythm and uh, tone perspective of a melody and banjo does that incredibly well and uh, I think I've really enjoyed listening to great banjo players playing duets with other instruments. Maybe that's that's part of the magic of a banjo is a banjo really shines, I feel like, and we've talked about this, that a banjo shines when it's with another instrument because it's complementary. It doesn't feel like it's a whole on its own sometimes, especially in the Irish context of just playing a reel. When you play it with another musician on a different instrument, uh, it can really bring the banjo to life. Or even like, you know, and we found this to our amazement early on with We Banjo 3, that banjos with other banjos played with some curiosity and some ability to sort of nuance and hear what complement what's happening, that you can create new tonal and uh, colorful landscapes. And you, you think, oh, that's just two banjos stacked on top of each other, but there's so much that can be done in that. I think back to when we started playing old time music together and we weren't really well versed or didn't grow up in old time traditions but you could see straight away that the Irish tenor banjo had all of these possibilities that we were, you know, before that unaware of. Um, and that, that was really exciting. So I feel like that's where I want to go is uh, find those little avenues and pursue them with curiosity and not too much judgment, because that's probably my big downfall is finding way too much judgment in the pursuit, <laughs> pursuing those things. Yeah. yeah, because playing solo banjo at home during a pandemic is basically a soulless vacuum of self-criticism in the dark. <laughs> it, 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 it's a form of the physicalization of self-loathing, really, isn't it? Like... <laughs> yes, that's actually very good. <laughs> I feel like that, that, that's, that's exactly the point we were making, that the banjo is so complementary with other instruments, but it's really hard on its own. Maybe it's the staccato nature of it, I just find it doesn't have that in a real reverberant room. Like, and I, the funny thing is the optics of that. When I'm then standing at soundcheck, listening to you playing in a reverberant room on your own, I think, wow, the banjo is so amazing. It has so many overtones. It's so interesting. It's so different to the other instruments. But then I go to play it myself and I think, what is this pot of warbly strings that's making noise? I hate it. Yeah. So I think, and I'll, I'll ask you this, do you think that that speaks much more to your own um, personality of perfectionism and the self-critic that comes. It's the other side of the coin of excellence. I, I do believe that. Um, because, you know, we know hundreds of banjo players that they love nothing more than to come home from work, take out the banjo and essentially plink plonk away on just any tune at all. And they love it. Whereas, I, and I think I identify with you when it's like, I take out the banjo and I'm going to go, this just doesn't sound as awesome as if I was playing the fiddle or the piano or or anything else. So in, in terms of personality, I always never, start, 
like we're never ha- i mean I, I do start these questions with a question and then it becomes a statement that doesn't have a question mark at the end except a sort of suggested one what do you think martin yeah i i think that that's part of like we banded three's dna too uh and part of our friendship and i think it's been good for us and good for the banjo to push it and feel a little uneasy about stasis and um, homeostasis but i do often uh, and i think i've remarked to you that i feel like i would love to be able to sit down and just whittle away on a reel and feel the joy that i did when i was 12 you know uh there's a, a tinge of nostalgia that like when i was 12 i'd sit down and play the banjo and be absolutely delighted playing the mullingar races or uh i don't know the dune reel or something and just really get into it and nowadays before i'm even in the music i'm thinking about pick efficiency and types of pick and pick angle and strings and tension. And so sometimes I think that can obfuscate and obscure the true artistry of just playing the tune. So I'm trying to find the happy medium. I haven't found it yet, uh, uh, but if anyone knows the address, I'm very interested in getting there. So it sounds, that sounds like a metaphor for life. When I was a kid, I did things and I didn't think too much about them. And now I'm an adult and I overthink everything and complicate the living <laughs> day. Like, complicate the joy out of life. <laughs> yeah. Overthinking. Uh, yeah, go, go, go back to childhood. I mean, go back to what it was like to be 11 and 12 and playing the banjo. What, what did that look like for you at that age? Yeah, there were never any grand designs that, I mean, music wasn't seen as a professional career within my sphere of living. Uh, So I don't think I ever thought about it that way. I just really loved playing. And I loved the community that was around Irish music for me, which was all happenstance and luck, really. I mean, I had great parents who saw the potential for joy from the music, and they pursued that for us. And so it was never any pushiness or any sort of drive for success. You know, we didn't have the tiger mom type thing. We just had supportive parents, which I was really grateful for. But the banjo was sort of an avenue and an outlet, even before I knew that I could kind of put my emotional state in some cosmic order using an instrument. I was doing that through the banjo. And I think it helped to difficult teenage years to kind of be able to sit down and play a banjo. And I definitely played other instruments and enjoyed them too. But I keep coming back to the banjo and sort of playing mad tunes and, you know, looking up to figures in the Irish music um, scene that were doing different things and trying to play like them. And it was it was great. I, I don't think I could look back with any regrets other than sometimes I think, you know, I would have uh, loved to play even more and believe that it was possible to do so, um, you know, that, that, that a career in music was possible because... I would have probably loved to go and do music in school. I, d- I didn't think it was possible, so I didn't do so. But I, looking back now, sometimes I, I would love to have, you know, more of the theory and more of that core understanding of where things are coming from so that I could science it out sometimes, you know? Mm, yeah. I mean, I did classical music for years and I still didn't pick up any of that stuff, despite, <laughs> you know, having distinctions for nine years of piano. And at the end of it, I think Mick Flannery, who, who I chatted to during the summer, said that. He said, I never knew that there was a toolbox oh, for music. Crazy. And he said, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple toolbox. Had I known 20 years ago that there was a toolbox, it would have made life a lot easier. And you didn't really need a toolbox for playing Irish music. You just learned the melody. But I think it would have been wonderful had I known that there was a toolbox of chords and progressions. And I do feel within, you know, within the bluegrass world that that bluegrass musicians learn that entire sphere of music altogether and they have an advantage from that do you think though that i mean i i don't know but do you think that if you have the toolbox full that when you go to play irish music with all its oddities in terms of phrasing and meter and swing and all the irregularities even in like mixolydian plus modes and such that like, do you think that it would actually make it harder because you'd be thinking about it too much? Well, I knew guitar players who knew too many chords and they could intellectualize the soul out of any session because rather than just getting into it, because Irish music is very simple, 
they will be trying to almost wedge this uh, intellectual level of musicianship into the whole thing and and almost kill it. So uh, I think that answers in a roundabout way. Of the interview where I asked you questions. I'm not sure that's, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, Irish music is very social music. Um, yeah. Did, did that... Did that impact on you, uh, you know, as a teenager growing up, the ability to be able to go in and sit in the middle of a session, swing out the banjo, you know, have girls come and sit in your knee? Yeah. They, they would have got in the way of your picking hand, but... Yeah, I had to pu- I had to be pushing them off my knees <laughs> and short legs at the time, and they were just getting in the way. Like, um, Yeah, it definitely was a huge part of our social life. Uh, I I joined a Kyoto's group called Kilnadima, which you know well because you, you taught there and that was part of our friendship too. Definitely had your group of Kyol uh, experiences were very formative, you know, around chords and harmony and theory. The Yeah, the, the, the social aspect was great. I loved meeting people. I met some of my very best friends through music and definitely there was an angle of like meeting girls. I'm not going to lie. It was, uh, is, you know, rock star banjo, You'd think it's great for picking up girls. I still don't know if it was to this day, but sometimes it's worked for me. <laughs> my wife, Diana, tells me that like our very first meeting was me teaching her the banjo uh, backstage at a gig. So I had forgotten. I tried to teach so many women the banjo that I had forgotten that that's how we met. But she uh, she was curious after my uh, attempts at teaching her the banjo and uh, that one thing led to another and now we're married. So uh, banjo has brought good things to my life. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, just going back to the banjo and it's um, the, the ban- banjo bling. Why do you think the banjo is so collectible? I, I, I don't know anyone that has 15 fiddles. I mean, there's, there's bound to be collectors of fiddles, but it seems to be a really big thing in the banjo world. That's like, here's my collection. I have 19 banjos. I can't really play any of them, but I'm going to buy another one. Yeah. Why is that? Are they just like shiny things, you know, that you collect like stones and that's a terrible uh, comparison, but <laughs> the banjo like a stone. They, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't collect banjos, but um, I do collect instruments. I have like many different types of, you know, odd instruments like ban- resonator banjos and octave mandolins and tenor guitars and electric tenors and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. There's definitely a, there's definitely a, a strong cohort of collectors of banjos. And when I went down to the, the banjo museum in Oklahoma, uh, I was blown away with the banjo collection. Like I didn't, I didn't know that such ornate banjos existed. I hadn't seen them in real life. Like they're unbelievably ornate and beautiful works of art. But I wouldn't be at all interested in playing most of them because they seem so heavy that I feel like I would fold in on myself. It would be like a black hole event of banjo playing. Um, I don't know. The, do, you, do you have a good theory on why people collect banjos? No. I have I, I I don't understand it. I have four banjos, uh, probably one too many because there's. Well, I, I mean, I have three that play very nicely, and then I have one that looks amazing, and I take it out for photographs, <laughs> which is a probably a bad use of a five thousand euro banjo. Um, I'd like to think that each of them has a particular role, but the notion of buying another one and then another one and collecting anything. But, you know, collecting was ruined for me years ago when I read uh, I read a book and it had a quote from Buddha, which said, the empty soul collects. And I was like, well, I'm not going to have an empty soul, so I'm going to stop collecting things. <laughs> Buddha and the banjo. I love it. That's a Yeah, I, maybe you're onto something there that, like, I feel like there might be the potential that I'm unhappy with the sound. Much to, like, the first part of our conversation, you're chasing that perfect banjo and it's not quite there so you pick up another banjo kind of banjo acquisition syndrome and you think this banjo might be better but i can't give away any other banjos because they're all special like my special children so you form some emotional attachment to an imperfect banjo and then you're still on the search for the perfect banjo maybe that's the best working theory i'd have i i would love to 
find exciting new avenues in banjos because I picked up so many of them over the years and played them and left slightly wanting, you know, just wanting more from them. So I'm still, I'm still searching for the, the perfect banjo, but I feel like I would also sell any banjo I currently have to have that perfect banjo. They feel more like tools than emotional instruments to me. Yeah. Have you ever played one that you went, I really, really, really want this banjo? You know, maybe it was in a collection or belonged to somebody else that was not going to sell it. Yeah, I did. During the summer, a couple of years back, I played a top tension five string. Like, I can't play a five string, but I just picked it. Um, And obviously, it made no sense because I don't play that tuning at all. But just the richness of tone that I could get off it right away, I was like, wow, I love this. And the maker of that banjo had died, but top tension banjos are a thing that I'm currently exploring. But they're just very, very heavy. And I'm not sure that I, you know, that was that could have been just that one in a million banjo. But that was the closest I've got to, if this was a four string, and who knows, because then you put a four string neck on that and it loses its magic. I'm not sure. Uh, like your neck fill is beautiful. The short scale neck fill that, um, that you and Tom designed, I thought that, that that had great potential. Like as a banjo, I felt like I played it and I went, that's almost there. It's, it's in the right direction in so many ways. Um, and so much of it too is subjective and personal preference. Like, you know, I'm going to like a set of overtones that you may not like, and I'm going to like a certain V in the neck that other people won't enjoy at all. So I don't know. It's the Holy Grail, isn't it? The, the instrument that will make you it, it it is, and you put on a brand new set of strings, and it sounds awful. And then the next day, it sounds awesome. And then two days later, it's like, oh, this banjo is terrible again. And you know, it can often be down to the quality of the string. You get a dud ace. I mean, and then the we won't even. I mean, maybe we will. We'll get into talking about picks. And I still feel that banjo picks a little bit like five string banjo makers who make tenor banjos. It's like, well, we're going to make these awesome guitar picks. And if one of them accidentally suits the banjo, great, but we didn't make it for the banjo. Yeah. It comes down to that addressable market, like the likes of Dunlop who are making millions of picks a year for guitar players, you know, from the jazz range to the Tortex range to the nylon range. And some of them might accidentally suit tenor banjo, uh, because I, I remember us playing a festival in California, uh, Ball Rocks, and a Dunlop rep came up to talk to us afterwards, and he had never seen Tenor Banjo play it, and he was completely blown away with the whole show and and the instruments. And I've had that reaction. You've had that reaction. I mean, the whole band have had that reaction when we meet bluegrass players who haven't been exposed to Irish music. They're blown away with what has been incubating quietly on a corner in the edge of Europe. I mean, and it's much more broad than that i suppose in a lot of ways but it's still a niche thing and i feel like you know the mandolin has been awakening in that way like i've explored lots of different picks from casing picks to uh to blue chips to wegans that are all these like heavy custom space age material picks or casings actually milk protein i guess but like they're using different materials to try and generate tone and then they're looking at the bevels and the edges on those picks and and the, the opportunities that are in that are massive. They change the mandolin fundamentally. You know, you could pick up the same mandolin and pick, pick it on three different picks and it's going to sound totally different. Um, and I, I wish that we'd have that selection in the Irish banjo. I mean, we've you and I have probably invested a, a small house uh, value in, in, in picks uh, over the years. That might be an exaggeration, but something along the order of magnitude. I feel like I've ordered thousands of picks in my lifetime and I'm still searching for the right one. You know, mm. Some of them have too much slap. Some of them melt too hard in your, or too fast in your hand. Some of them lose their edge too fast. Some of them don't have the right flex or snap. There's all these qualities that uh, they, they're so... Maybe here's a real thought that I've been thinking. You know... Like if you pursue surfing or something like that, that's very ephemeral. Part of the reason you keep coming back to it is because it's so fleeting. And I feel like I've had moments in banjo that are analogous to that, that I've had moments where pure perfection, like I feel like I'm playing things that I didn't even know I was capable of, uh, like a higher sense of being in terms of the musical expression. And I have this outer body experience of looking back at myself and thinking, I didn't know you could do that. That's, that was beautiful 
Um, but those moments are so fleeting, but I think I keep chasing them. And maybe the banjo's imperfection uh, makes that even more chaseable because the moments are so infrequent that you wouldn't get comfortable with them. Uh, yeah. That was very esoteric. <laughs> surfing. You managed to wedge surfing in there. That's I'm impressed. Yeah, i got to get coffee in there next and see how I go. <laughs> uh, what excites you most as a musician? Oh, like music from the heart. I think that's been a change in my personality as I've grown older. I definitely was very taken with technique and with the heady stuff. When I was younger, I thought, oh, that's so cool and fresh and innovative. And I still have a real strong place in my heart for that. I love watching people be curious and do something new. But I'm most amazed when, and even in music, genres that I'm not too familiar with, when you can find someone who plays from the heart, a uh, real deep sense of emotional connection in the music, that's where the magic is for me. And that's what I'm trying to figure out for myself is that I'd love to be 70 years of age and sitting down playing a banjo and to be emotionally connected with another person. It doesn't really matter how many people are involved, but that that transcendence, that emotional connection, that's that's the thing that excites me most. And it it's the thing I'm working on, uh, you know, trying to get away from all the technical in the head stuff and get to what what is the emotional connection for me in this. Hmm. I was going to say, where do you see yourself in five years? But you brought it up. Where do you see yourself when you're 70? Will you still be touring? <laughs> I'd like to be playing. I don't know what touring is. Yeah. I mean, I give, I give it a go. I really, I realized this year that I missed so many things about touring. And um, I don't miss the early starts and the flights at odd times and, you know, dodgy hotels and things that, have been part of touring life in years past, but I do miss the camaraderie and the connection of playing live with the band on stage, making something new each night uh, that then the audience are part of that story. And maybe I'm seeing it through rose tinted glasses, but I feel like that's all very worthwhile. All the other sort of small sacrifices feels worthwhile. I don't know when I'm 70, will I be able to make as many sacrifices? Maybe I'll tour differently. But I, I love the idea that I'd be uh, still able to play music at a reasonable level and that people would still want to hear the music that I'd be putting forth. That seems like the dream, you know? Hmm. Uh, what about you? Where do you see yourself at 70? Well, I, I, I try not to think about it too much. Because yeah, part of me thinks it, it, it should be in a camper van in the south of Spain. <laughs> I could see you like a hippie around the campfire with your banjo, like singing uh, Kumbaya. Your man? <laughs> yeah, what was your man that had uh, this machine kills fascists on his banjo? Oh, yeah, Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger. Yeah, you could have a Pete Seeger vibe. Pete Seeger of uh, the Algarve or something. Yeah. But, uh, that would be quite a goal because right now the notion of playing solo banjo around a, camp of, a campfire or even my own home fills me with dread. So the thought that I have to wait another, you know, 30 years. <laughs> uh, well, more than 30 years. And you're 25 or 26 at this stage. The banjo keeps young. I'm convinced of that watching you through the last, I was thinking recently that I know you for many years now, but I feel like you're the Benjamin Button of the banjo, you know, and inspiring to be around too, because, you know, you say all that, about your self-doubt, but I've watched you constantly innovate and create new things. And it's a real source of innovation for me and inspiration for me, because when I see you do something new, it propels me to go, well, I should give it a go because like, that's very cool. And, uh, you know, not out of a competitive sense, but more out of a, that's possible sense, you know, for someone as established and as technically gifted as you are on the banjo, you're still, pushing the boundaries and the little edges of the envelope of what is possible. And that's, that's where it's at. Like, and maybe, maybe by the time you're 70, you'll have done enough of that and you'll be able to just sit back and relax. That's, that's the hope. Just play polkas. I appreciate it. Welcome and to the Martin Howley podcast. <laughs> I, I haven't, I haven't, uh, 
I haven't been on one of your podcasts. This is, you're you're a very good interviewer. You ask a lot of good questions. The question I was going to ask, and you, you and now you've you've just gone brought it up about innovation because yeah, I've been trying loads of different things over the years, and, and a lot of it came from uh, developing an interest in in bluegrass music and in American music, having come from a very very strong Irish tradition. Uh, and I went down the old timey route of trying to get that really earthy uh, sound from a banjo. Uh, and in the last number of years, I've been trying to catch up with you in terms of cross picking. And so you've gone and developed a, a completely different method of cross picking that I don't believe has been done on a four string banjo to any great extent before. Uh, talk to me a little bit about developing that technique because. It's not easy. I'm blushing here, and good, uh, very nice of you. Uh, yeah, that that's true. I definitely, I think that, you know, I, again, serendipity plays a large part. I was lucky that when I was in my teens, I got a Bella Fleck record from my mom and dad, and it was Drive, you know, one of these more bluegrass centric albums, and um, I just loved the energy that was in that. At the time, I didn't realize it was the three over four um, rhythm that was happening, that was driving the music on. But I just loved what the banjo did in it. Um, and I didn't know that Bella Fleck was playing a five-string banjo. Like, it, the internet wasn't really much of a thing. And I hadn't seen, I knew that there were five-string players, but I didn't really qualify the difference between what I did and what they did mechanically. So I just gave it a go. And I remember we had this app on the computer called the Amazing Slow Downer, um, that actually pulled it way out of tune. In its first iterations, that app used to like change the tone and change the pitch a lot. So uh, I'd have to detune the banjo and play along with Bella at like 0.25% of the speed that he was playing and learn those, what I later found out were new grass rolls. They were like power five rolls, you know, rather than having the full triad chord in it, they would just have the first and the fifth repeated multiple iterations of it and then add the color that they want, like the fourth or the second or the seventh, whatever they wanted to put in to create the energy. Um, and I was just doing that accidentally. And like, uh, I didn't really know that it was anything special or different. And then it didn't really have much of a use case because I try it in sessions and people hated it. You know, they'd say, what are you doing? You know, be sitting beside a keyboard player and they're saying, this is this is terrible what you're doing on the banjo there. And I probably was pretty arrhythmical with the two, like especially at, at tempo. So it wasn't really till we started playing in Wii Banjo 3 that I found a use case for it, been able to play something different to what was going on. And the speed gradually came up. And I think the steadiness of understanding the metronomic nature of it, that it's almost a, it's almost like a, a, a drum fill in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so really understanding where the one is and where the three is and feeling them organically as they naturally speed up in Irish music. Uh, so that that's where it all came out of. But I think then I was driven on by the fact that everyone in the band loved it and you were trying different versions of it. And I feel like we started adding more, you know, colors and variants to it, you know, doing more across. At the start, it was just two drone strings, like a lot of it would be, say, out of the key of A major and playing, if you imagine GDAE, playing all of the melody notes on the D string and picking through the A and the E string, which are your first and fifth. So, you know, if you start on fret seven, you've got AAE, for example. And if you go down one fret to six, you've got G sharp, the seventh, or the, yeah, the major seventh against the A and E. And then go down to F, you've got that nice six color against it so you go on and for, go forth against like that and um that's what it was for the longest time was just doing a load of that in two keys d major and a major and then over time i started to fill in other little colors with the other fingers um and it's still a work in progress i'd say it's fairly nascent but um it's been a kind of an enjoyable experience to see how it works in irish music and also then to watch you know you and dave come up with completely different ones that i wasn't able to do and then sit at home and try and replicate what you were doing. And I feel like, you know, that's the thing is that having a group of people do something pushes the innovation because everyone's coming from a slightly different musical direction and they they add different colors that you wouldn't think of otherwise. Um, but I think it's been a good, I think it's been a good addition. 
Yeah. So do you identify what the different techniques that you do, do you identify them to standard role formats in bluegrass music? Because I know they all have names, whereas we just called it all cross-picking. Yeah. I feel like I like the organic thing where we just apply, certainly within the context of the band, we're not talking about, oh, it'd be cool if you did a forward role there. You're just trusting the musicality that someone will find, whether it's a two-string variant of it or three-string variant of it. You know, it's a forward role, it's a backwards role, it's a trad role, it's a new grass role. But there are, there's nomenclature for them all, but I don't think, because we didn't grow up in that idiom, it's not that useful or efficient to have the names. I do, when I'm teaching, try and give them names so that people can think, okay, that's that variant where you do one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, so that you get the four, four package over two bars. Um, but uh, I don't know that I have good names for them. It's, it's a difficult thing when you're on the edge of trying to find some new things. You you don't know what you don't know. You know, there are names for them, but it wasn't until I met people like um, Wes Corbett and Noam Pakelmy and started showing them what I was doing uh, that they were like, oh, that's this thing. You know, that's that's a forward role. And um, that I realized these are all from the bluegrass canon and there are a lot of them are pretty replicable, but I just didn't know the names. Um, hmm. I, I recently got, took out, uh, I found a PDF of the dummies guide to bluegrass roles. And I was trying to figure out, cause I, I do like probably two variances and then one that's really not within the bluegrass canon, but it's a form of cross picking, but the two that I do, I couldn't actually find them <laughs> on that PDF. And I was like, well, this is something completely different, but it approximates, it approximates what, what I, what I hear. Uh, now I had to do a huge amount of work to get, uh, to get the speed up. And I'm still, I think I'm 30 or 40% behind where you can hit when you're, when you're, when you hit top flight. But uh, what I did find was really useful was that ultra slow practice. So I'd been preaching it for years and I'd never really done it myself because it, it, within Irish music, it didn't really need to because I played so much. But when it came to learning how to cross pick at speed, I, yeah. I did it by doing mega slow. What did you do? Uh, I think I was lucky that I happened upon, I have this thought that, you know, we've talked a lot about picking pattern and not anchoring the hand is pretty key are certainly not anchoring like you can loosely touch the skin but any kind of tension through the wrist for the rotational aspect of um of quick picking can be a real detriment and i don't have like uh this is the perfect way to pick tenor banjo but certainly the idea of planting hard and pivoting seems to be counter to the very best in irish music i think you sort of have the same thought um but funny enough i think that the opposite is true for playing a cross pick because you're rotating through a fixed point in space over the same strings over and over again. So it's kind of a rotational collection. And by having some kind of thing you even loosely pivot off, I feel like helps a lot. So I accidentally had bad technique that allowed me to um, to do that. So then when I, when I cross pick, I, I revert to my old technique of pivoting hard off two fingers on the skin. Um, I don't pivot like rock solid, they still slide, but I find that to be way easier to, to especially at speed, because then the, the hand isn't just levitating in space. It's sort of just um, moving through a counterweight over time off the fingers. That got needlessly technical, but I think that's... Well, it makes yeah. a lot of sense. I, 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 I need to try that because I've never been able to pick properly or with any efficiency by having any form of like strong pivot. But then I do hit a tempo that uh, that I that that's hard to get past. And you know, when you listen to um, Russ Carson hitting one 180 BPM or something, you're like, forget about it. This just is never going to happen on a picked four four string banjo. It's impossible. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you know, there's like there's some kind of natural change in anatomy. Everyone's hands are a little bit different. Like I've always thought my thumb was quite long when I analyzed it compared to a lot of like bluegrass and jazz and pickers like you as well. My, my thumb seems long. So then it like curls and moves in a different way than other people's do. So I've always wondered at that, like, does that give me some benefits in terms of cross picking? I feel it does. 
Yeah, so I think that I accidentally had bad technique. Uh, I think we've talked about when we uh, started out um, on the journey of innovation. You've been on this uh, spiritual path for a few years longer than me, but trying to create the best possible efficient method for transmitting and translating uh, the musical canon. And in melody, it seems like having a hand that is free of tension is paramount importance. And one of the sources of tension is often pivoting hard, either off like the bottom or top of the wrist too hard or off the fingers on the skin. And uh, when I started playing banjo, I think I actually had quite a, a proclivity to pivot off the, the bottom uh, fingers. And that doesn't actually cause any problems until you come up to a certain speed. And above a certain speed, then it becomes really hard. Um, so I think it gives you great accuracy below a certain speed. And so that's why I didn't identify it early on. But then I rethought myself to pick with less of that. I still leave my fingers to slide sometimes, but they're not anchored. But the counter to that is I think that anchoring really works for cross-picking because it's much like the bluegrass tradition where the boys anchor hard and then rotate through a fixed point in space. So I feel like my thumb, sometimes when I watch it in videos, I find watching videos of myself back very uh, good for learning. It's also probably fairly ego-stroking too. But the... Uh, yeah, I find that, that my thumb moves in a slightly different pattern. There's like different bends in it, which I think maybe help in certain ways and then retard other things. Um, no, you've, you've a brilliant, um, you have a brilliant insight into the, and you've obviously done an awful lot of thinking about it, a brilliant insight into the, the, the really technical aspects of picking technique, particularly right hand. I mean, you're, you're, you're using terms, uh, you know, kind of like release and pivoting and lots of stuff that, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work in, in terms of trying to tie down a technique for playing Irish banjo, but I feel that you've gone even further into trying to understand the technical, physical, technical aspect of picking. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's very nice to hear because I do admire a lot the work you've done. I feel like we have similar ambitions. If you look at the great instruments and the pantheon of great players within those instruments, and there's almost a formalized, recognized technique or series of techniques that people use. And banjo or Irish center banjo has languished a bit in a world of ash or whatever you're having yourself. And um, it's, it's all fine when it, it, there are some consistently universal truths that these things will work better anatomically because they just are more efficient. You know, at the end of the day, it is a mechanical um, movement. And so if you can understand that and try and uh, utilize it to its best advantage, I think that's, that's worthwhile pursuing. Maybe I just have too much time in my hands. No, I, I mean, I really admire the drive to try and find more efficiencies in, you know, as we've discussed, banjo being a very inefficient instrument that what you get out of it, you know, relative to what goes in in terms of physical effort and possibly even in terms of the amount of time and practice sometimes can yeah. feel quite limited. Uh, and so trying to find a better, a better way to play it that you're going to get more out of it. Yeah. Is, is very laudable. I think we're just, we're both down that same path of optimizing. And I think I view it less in terms of my own career. Um, you know, I feel like progression has slowed down for me. And so I'm just trying to find new avenues to explore and stay curious and excited. But I do think that certainly the work that you've put in and the work that Jerry and so many others have put in for the banjo have meant that there's a lot of shortcuts maybe not shortcuts but there's a lot of good starting ground fertile starting ground for people who are coming next um, and the idea is that ultimately the banjo within irish music has a great seat now and feels like an instrument that's full of possibilities and if we can all add our little bit to helping the next generation out to do that uh, that iterative optimization is is what is so appealing and alluring in other traditions and i just want to be a little part of that story i think <laughs> And so do you think that Irish music has a has somewhere to go? Uh, and I mean that in terms, you know, like bluegrass music, you can go back, you got old time, then Earl Scruggs came along. I'm, I'm doing a real uh, hatchet job on the history of bluegrass music. But the idea that it progressed and kept progressing, and then now you have 
you know, Punch Brothers, you had Newgrass Revival, that as a traditional music, that it progressed and progressed and progressed. Is that happening in Irish music? And, you know, where might the banjo fit into a future? That's uh, heavy stuff. I, I'm going to attempt to give my own opinion on this, and I'll add the caveat that this is just opinion. I, I read recently that the time between the first time the Bluegrass Boys of Monroe played the Opry to the first live gig that um, Sam and the boys in Newgrass did uh, to this year, the difference is that there's actually a shorter period between Bluegrass Boys and first Newgrass Revival than there is between Newgrass Revival and now. And that's how young that tradition is. Um, It's very, very young. And I think it benefited from being young in an age where we have more leisure class, more time for progression, and more narrowing and focusing on minutiae in society. I think Irish music evolved very organically over a long period of time and has a much like longer runway, but a, a less exponential curve. And part of that is just that it was a peasant music and music was a secondary um, or, or maybe even tertiary thing for most people up until very recently. Like the, the rise of professional music in Irish music has been very, very recent. And I feel like we may see growth in all sorts of different directions where the cross-pollination of different ideas, such as what we do with We Banjo 3, trying to bring some Americana perspectives and bluegrass and old-time perspectives to the Irish canon. I think other people are doing that with jazz. They're doing that with modern classical. They're doing that. Um, even, you know, in simple like world music terms, you know, you see the stuff like Afro-Celt um, and a lot of the African cross-pollination stuff. There's some Asiatic mixes with, um, you know, people playing Urhu in an Irish setting and such. Like, So I think there's, it's in safe hands, not, not to mention there's the continuing um, evolving of the Irish canon itself and the Celtic music canon, like Scottish music and... Breton and Cape Breton, that that's all happening in our lifetimes. And I think we're just so close to the coalface, we don't see it. You know, it's happening on a very incremental and slow level in comparison to something like bluegrass or jazz that is a very recent music form. Um, but I do, I do believe, maybe it's the optimist in me, I believe that Irish music has a lot yet to go. Um, and I think that the biggest worry I would have is people holding on too tightly to what they understand or ascribe to be traditional music because that's always the death of any culture when people decide this is it fixed in time this is how things should be because like you look at the great cultures of the world like be it from the greeks through to like the honic empire they when they fix things in time when they got comfortable and decided this is it no more progression that's when they died uh, so i believe that can be mapped more earthly to irish music than, hmm. you know, yeah, Bob Dylan said it. Uh, I think it was Bob Dylan. He said, any culture that doesn't continually innovate and progress will ultimately stagnate and die. Yeah. And you don't have to like it all. Like, there are things I don't fully understand when I hear them, but I'm I'm proud to be Irish, proud, proud that our musical culture is still relevant and still important and... I feel like our national identity, like my my way to interact with the world as an Irishman isn't to be drinking pints and singing rebel songs and no no injustice to any of those things. But I feel like my way to interact is to play Irish music with this new sense of curiosity about how it can interact and be intersectional and be relevant. Um, you know, that Ireland doesn't have to be the land of shamrocks and peace and leprechauns. It can be... Ireland in the 21st century, maybe we're the 22nd century. I don't know what century we're in now. Um, <laughs> 2020 has been a century all on its own. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you look at you look at Ireland and it's so progressive, like top of the EU in so many metrics. It's such a, a forward-looking country in so many ways. And we're still self-deprecating as a culture and still have a laugh at ourselves and don't take ourselves too seriously. But you'd like to think that Irish music has a place in all that. I, I certainly think it does. Um, you asked earlier, to come full circle, you asked about when I was growing up, one of the things I would change is that I wish I didn't feel as ashamed. I'd play the banjo at different events at school and things, and I'd feel almost half ashamed that I was playing 
a banjo instead of playing, you know, electric guitar and just riffing like Steve Vai. And I look back now at that time and I wish that I'd had more confidence that what I was doing was worthwhile. Um, so I'd, I'd be kinder to myself, maybe. Mm. Final question. Your absolute dream collaboration are, and maybe it's the same answer, your dream performance on stage? Oh, that's a really... Honestly, right now in 2020, I'd taken so much of it for granted for... We Bandit 3 has been on the road for 10 years and I'd taken so much for granted in terms of my direct connection with you and with Fergal and with Dave. I just assumed, oh, I'd love to play with Bella Fleck or I'd love to play with Rhiannon Giddens or uh, I'd love to play with Sam Bush. And, you know, we did all that. We played with them and it was amazing. But when I dissected it in my time and journaled it out... Part of what was amazing about that was sharing that musical experience with people that I feel like I have the deepest musical connection I've ever had in my life. Um, and I think my dream collaboration is to continue making music in that form where I feel like there's so much that can be unsaid that can just be translated musically and organically. And I love the limitless potential that has. So I feel like my dream collaboration is to just continue playing music with Evangel 3 and see where it can go. Because it feels like a rocket ship. You know, I'm on it. And a lot of the time, I feel like I'm holding it back. I'm thinking, wow, these lads are so good. And I'm pushed to be better. And I'm inspired. But I'm also, like, just really happy to be along for the ride. I was sure you were going to say to play at the Grammy opening ceremony. But your your answer was way better. It was corny, like, but I, I, I mean, that's kind of my <laughs> <laughs> it was hard think about it heartfelt but it's the truth you know in 2020 it taught me that and that was one of the things i'm most grateful for the year is that i had we've been so busy with we banjo three i'd come out on tour sometimes and i'd be missing home maybe or annoyed that the sound mix wasn't right or that i wasn't playing right i was finding so much frustration in the day-to-day minutiae which I assumed was me living in the moment, but it wasn't really. I wasn't actually enjoying the magic of making music with my, you know, my closest friends. Uh, and so that'll change when I go back, I hope. I'm, I'm really going to make that a, a mission because when I came back this summer and played with you and Fergal for the first time, it's the first time I'd been in the room with any of We Banjo 3. And I was, I came away from it and my face was completely melted. I, I have no other way to describe it. I was just silent for about two days afterwards thinking, oh, that's what music is and that's what I've missed. And I needed that recalibration. It was, it was very uh, important. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience and it re- it reminded me of the very first time that you and I and Dave sat in my kitchen and we played what we thought or, you know, was old-timey music on three banjos. And it's so easy to forget the magic and the simplicity of that moment when you get caught up with touring schedules and T-shirt sales and is the next gig sold out and is the next tour booked and have we the taxes done and everything that goes with being in a business that it's very easy to forget why we did it. It is. What's what? What would be your favorite collaboration? What would you? Love this is to my do? this is my interview. I don't have to answer hard questions like that. <laughs> I've no idea. I'd love to. I, I love collaborating. I love when other musicians are on stage. It terrifies me. We played with Bela uh, at Wintergrass. I was both terrified at the time and then afterwards elated that I hadn't screwed it up and then went back and listened to it and went, that was actually really awesome. Um, I love I love when there's other musicians on stage. I'd love to do something like Telluride with some big jam band like String Dusters where it's just rocking out, awesome sound, great audience, and the excitement of that, you know, yeah. Not Punch Brothers, I'd be too scared. I can, I can definitely get with that. Um, yeah, if anything was to give me a complex, it would be watching Chris Thede live while I'm also playing the same instrument it seems like a very bad idea i do have a great idea though for an art installation which would be chris Thiele live and the rest of us chopping up our mandolins with an axe 
burning them. Yeah, I feel like that that would be a good. I'd, I'd pay to see that art installation. Maybe art. We, we probably wouldn't be able to do it as an installation at the American Banjo Museum. Mightn't. Uh, We're doing the Bella Fleck though, like Bella playing something iconic, uh, the Sinister Minister or something like that, and then us just being in the background, uh, <laughs> chopping up banjos for firewood. <laughs> Pagan rituals, I think. I like M- maybe melting the gold leaf off it and running away with gold. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo3.com, to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time inside the Banjoverse.